Amen. There was a group of Christian missionaries who met in Delhi, India, and they were meeting with representatives of every religion represented, uh, every major religion represented in, uh, in India at the time, where there were missionaries going to, uh, to spread their religion. In the course of their talks, a member of the Hindu religion, the largest religion in India, challenged the Christian missionaries and said, you tell us, what does your religion offer that ours cannot offer the Indian people? And the missionary thought for a moment and he replied, sir, our God can offer people in India forgiveness. Can your gods? Of course, the answer is no. There is no forgiveness in Hinduism. Hinduism is a religion based upon fear. Basically, every other religion in the world is a religion based upon fear. We have to do something to serve the gods so that they do not get angry at us and destroy us. But the God of the Bible is the one who comes to us in grace and love and mercy and kindness. Now, He is a God of wrath and He is a God of of justice and He is a God who will not be mocked and a God who is holy, but He comes to us in His grace and His mercy, and offers us forgiveness of sins. And so we see in this famous parable, that's what is at the heart of this message, forgiveness of sins. And every one of us is either right now in this time of our lives, or at one point we were this foolish prodigal son who was away from God. But I want to be clear, forgiveness is available to you this morning. The parable of the good father, really that is the right term. We call it the, prodigal, the, the, the parable of the prodigal son. That's an unfortunate title. It's really the, a parable of the good father. And even the, the, I don't know what your title is, in my Bible it's the parable of the lost son. I wanted to scribble that out. It's the parable of the good father. This is all about the good father. And as we go through this, I want you to know the characters so that you can keep in straight in your mind what Jesus is doing, and you should know that the people who are hearing this parable knew exactly what Jesus was doing. That's why I didn't need to explain it. The father in this parable is God himself. The foolish son, sinners and tax collectors. And the unhappy, proud, arrogant son, it's the Pharisees. So Jesus begins with this parable, perhaps the most famous parable in the Bible. Between this and the Good Samaritan, you know what's interesting about both of those parables? They're unique to the Gospel of Luke. Luke was adamant in finding what Jesus taught and getting it down to get his words into the ears of the people who would read and hear this passage, this book. So as we begin, though, I want you to notice the problems that are present in verses 11 through 16. I'll read those verses again now. Then Jesus said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. 
But when he had spent all, there arose a, a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him to his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. There are several problems in this, but I want to begin with the first problem, and that is when people divorce this parable from the other two. See, we have to recognize that this parable falls inside of a context. And we have just two weeks ago looked at the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, and Jesus goes now into the parable of the lost son, and that's why the New King James goes into that title. It's still not the best title. But this, this parable has at its heart the same message as the first two parables. But Jesus begins by setting up the story, presenting a man with two sons. The younger son acts as a fool, and young Children, people who are young, tend to act unwisely. If you think of your younger days, you can see foolish actions in your past. But this son, he is the very definition of fool. First problem is he goes to his father and he demands the portion of goods that falls to him. This is his portion of the estate. He's after his inheritance early. The child did not receive his inheritance until the father died. And so with this request, what this son is doing is saying, why don't you just die already? In fact, with this request, he is basically saying to his father, you're dead to me. I want my inheritance. That's the first problem. And the listeners who are hearing this would have been shocked and aghast and thought, well, this father is going to slap this fool upside the head. Second problem, the father gives in to the request. And the listeners are even more angry because now the father is acting in even a more shameful way by giving in to this request. John MacArthur explains that in order to give the son his request, the father had to sell cheap and the son would receive far less than what he would have later in life. So the son's impatience comes first in the request for the inheritance, but then also you see that not many days after. Well, what's he doing in those many days? Well, he's taking his inheritance and he's selling it, turning it into cash. And he leaves to go to a far country. He cannot wait to get away from home. He not only just leaves the father's house, he goes as far away from home as he can. He goes to a far country where no one knows him, where he can go and live however he would like. The problem is, the kind of living he takes up with, Jesus says, is he wasted his possessions. That word wasted literally means to scatter about. Last night, our troop was in the parade, and we were following behind a trailer of the uh, Lakeview uh, 10 Under Baseball Champions. And they were there to celebrate. And the way they were celebrating was by throwing out as much candy as they possibly could at every person they saw. And, I mean, they were taking handfuls like this and just throwing it. So we really didn't have to throw out a whole lot of candy because there was so much candy on the road. And even today, driving to church, we saw the candy. Perhaps you did as well. 
That's the idea, though, of this word waste. It just means to scatter, throw it out. I mean, they, they wasted that candy. There was so much candy, the kids couldn't even collect it all. They didn't want it. I mean, it was amazing how many Tootsie Rolls were on the ground because nobody really wanted the Tootsie Rolls when there were Skittles and everything else out there to be had. Jesus says he wasted his living with prodigal, wasted his possessions with prodigal living. The idea behind the word prodigal is reckless, wasteful behavior. Unfortunately, the prodigal son is not some hypothetical character in Jesus' parable. He's all around us. He lives in your neighborhood. Perhaps he's your coworker, even your boss. He's the one who lives on credit cards because he can't stay inside of his income. He's the one who you might be standing next to in a grocery store. He might be in your family. And if you're honest, perhaps you are like the prodigal son. He is all around us. Could be a politician, could be a patriot, could be an activist, could be someone who goes to church but goes to church only to try to calm his conscience down so he can live however he wants Monday to Saturday. He's all around us. I want you to recognize the prodigal son so that you are not like him. So you know how not to live. The Lord's admonition is given through Paul in Ephesians 5.18. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. See, this man spent everything he had. And at that time, something outside of his control. Isn't that amazing how it happens? You have prosperity and everything's great and then you run out of something and then there's hardship upon hardship. Stuff you can't control, but you were unwise with what you could control and now what you can't control has made your life even harder. And this severe famine came to the land and he was in need and no one gave him anything because it was so severe. They're just struggling to get by themselves and they're certainly not going to help this guy out. Now the idea behind what this young man did is he was throwing parties. And all the people came to his parties to have fun, but then when the parties were over, no one had use for him. So what he does is he joins himself up with someone to feed pigs. And by the way, the listeners are probably saying, serves him right. Serves him right. To feed pigs, for a Jew to feed pigs, was the lowest job available. And so the fact that he joined himself up with this Gentile man, there's no guarantee this man really fed him. He was so hungry, he wanted to eat the carapods the pigs were eating. The problem with carapods is bodies, people's bodies can't digest them. And so he could have tried to eat it, but it wouldn't have done anything for him. And so the carapods would not have satisfied him. His life is bitter, and it's all his own fault. It's his own doing. All of his so-called friends are gone. There's no welfare program to pick him up. The government does not care for him. His master is not kind to him. He has no one and nothing left. He is utterly alone. He is in the saddest state of his life. And here, behold, the prodigal son with all of his problems. 
But Jesus now turns and presents the pardon. In verses 17 through 24, we read, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough in despair, and I perish in hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And, he said, and his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. I want you to notice, first of all, in verse 17 is... Very important one. If you mark up in your Bible, if you write in your Bible, I want you to take a pen and I want you to underline the phrase, he came to himself. What does that mean? That implies that he has a process of better thinking. This is the beginning of repentance for this man. It's not full repentance just yet, but it's the beginning of repentance. He began to evaluate his circumstances and he recognized his only course of action is to humble himself and to go back home. That's it. There's nowhere else to go but back to his father. He sees himself as he is. Now notice what he says. I have sinned against heaven first and against you, my father. He's beginning to think better. He sees his father's servants, hired servants, as having bread, and here he is, starving. And so the reality is he's thinking like this, the servants eat and the son starves. I must go home. It's the beginning of proper thinking. It's the beginning of repentance taking place, but repentance does not start until he gets up and goes. It is a beautiful picture of repentance, is it not? Where this man is in this far country. He's living in sin. He's doing what he wants. He's bringing it all to himself. He's feeding his flesh. And then all of a sudden, sin, that master that it is, turns. And this young man who thought he was in control of his life, who thought he had the world in the palm of his hand, finds out all he has done has been trapped. And he cannot get away. And the master that is sin is destroying his life. It is laughing at him as he is utterly helpless to do anything with his situation. But then he came to himself. And he turns and he begins to walk back home to go towards his father, to go a different direction. What a beautiful picture of repentance. Here comes this man. Back to home. And remember, this is Jesus is talking about the, the previous parables that God rejoices when one sinner repents. So this is the picture of repentance. The man in the far country coming home. The sinner who is lost in sin being found. And so here is this man, is this foolish man 
has a glimmer of wisdom as he recognizes, not only is he going to go home and he recognizes his state, I am not worthy to be called a son. He sees himself lowly. As every sinner should see themselves as lowly in the eyes of God. Why would God ever give the time of day to a sinner like me? And yet he knows your name. He knows the hairs on your head. And he calls you home. The reality is this man recognizes that he has sin. That, key, that word is a key word. What is sin? We, we talk about sin and yet we don't always define it. Sin is anything that goes against the will and the character of God. And he recognizes that. And so that's why he begins with, I have sinned against heaven. I have sinned against heaven. Second Samuel twelve thirteen. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And in Psalm 51.4, his psalm of repentance, David is even more adamant saying, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now, what do you mean? You've killed a man. You've adulterated with a woman. And you've only sinned against God. And God says, yes, that's how it works. All sin is against me. And yes, you can sin against others, but your sin is primarily against God, the one whose image they bear. And so this young man begins to go home. David Garland says this about repentance. He says, Repentance may be most difficult for those who think themselves righteous, who seemingly need no repentance. Prodigal sinners leave the pigsty. But the righteous sinner must leave what they imagine to be their righteousness behind. See, the pigsty, we know what that is. I remember when I was a young man, my uncle had pigs. I had to go out there to, to feed the pigs with my cousin every once in a while. And I remember thinking, wow, I'm glad I don't live next to these pigs. They stink. You don't want to stick around with the pigs. But when you're sitting in, at the banquet table with food, thinking that it's your doing... Not recognizing that it's causing you to, to, to lead to your own doom, why would you get up? It's easy to leave what we know is sin. It's hard to leave what we have considered righteous living. He confesses that he is not worthy of being this man's son. That word worthy speaks of a high degree of merit or worth. See, the reality is this son was not worthy of being called this man's son from the moment he demanded his inheritance. And so he recognizes that now. He's come to himself. His request is that his father would just take him and make him like a hired servant. That's all he wants. That's all he wants. The reality is You could say this young man just wants to eat. But it's amazing what dire straits will make you do. This is a picture of repentance, not just hunger. In verse 20, he gets up and he makes that long journey home. But what a beautiful picture is while he is still a long way off, his father sees him. Oh, he looks rather different than when he first left. When he left, he had a, a hitch in his giddy-up. He probably didn't look back. You know, if, if in our day, he'd have his, head, his, his AirPods in, 
He'd have his, his backpack on and he'd be swaggering the whole way out. Coming home, he's in rags. What is it about the son that the father knows? Well, here's the thing. He's a good father and he knows his child. He sees him afar off. And he doesn't wait for the son to get home. He runs to greet him. David Garland said the father had compassion on his son before he can even utter his confession. His reception exceeds the boiled's wildest dreams, showing that he has been forgiven. Now, the father having compassion on this foolish son is an emotional statement. And the warm fuzzies that you might be having right now are not the warm fuzzies, that are not the, not the emotion that they would have had in the original audience. They would have been angry. What is this father doing going out to greet him and have compassion on this foolish son who has brought him shame? They were shocked. They would have been incredulous that this father would have ever even brought him back in. In fact, they would have thought, make him stand out in the city square for a good week before you even go and meet him and greet him and then make him kiss your sandals. Not this father. This father is watching for his son and he had compassion which speaks of great affection and love. How shameful of him the audience must have thought to love someone like this. And yet, they're missing the point. He then ran to his son in excitement and joy. By the way, further angering his audience because uh, John MacArthur explains that Middle Eastern noblemen don't run. They sort of glide. Okay? In order to run in the Middle East, you have to hike up your robe and show your legs, which is shameful. This man does not care for social norms. He's not interested in making sure that everyone around him sees himself as proper. He's going to his son, and that is all that matters in the moment because his son has come home. Isn't it amazing how we can allow our, ourselves to get in the way of God's work? We are so quick to judge others for the same crimes that we are still, ourselves are guilty of. See, we've all been in the place of the prodigal son. See, when it's me coming home, well, I want God's mercy. But when it's them coming home, Lord, teach them a lesson. Isn't that how we often think? And yet, this is Jesus reminding us that God is gracious and kind and quick to take us back. See, on the other side of the cross, we see what Jesus has done for us. In Ephesians 2.13, we see that now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off in that far off country of sin, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Just like the good father in the parable of Matthew 9.36, we see the attitude that Jesus has for sinners. He had compassion because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. Scattered. See, Jesus' listeners certainly did not want to be merciful towards this son, but Jesus is explaining that God certainly would be. Which, by the way, is why I sit with the tax collectors and the sinners to teach them, to show them God's way, 
because God rejoices when one repents. Jesus is just laying it on here, by the way. Father sees a son, has compassion, and runs to him, and then he publicly hugs and kisses him. The people are just, I mean, the Pharisees' heads are ready just to just burst. What is going on? What is this man teaching? In verse 21, the, the son makes his plea to his father, but the father's having none of it. Doesn't even let him finish. Doesn't even get to the point where he wants to make himself a, a servant. The father cuts him off. And he turns to his servants and he gives four sets of commands. He said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it and be merry. Four sets of commands. Now, the best robe is a sign of high social status reserved for the highest of guests, whom the Pharisees thought was them. And in their indignation, can you just see their, you just hear their jaws crack in half as they, the best robe for this fool? That's reserved for someone like me, who's done everything right, who's in a good status, who's high up, not that fool, that dog. Isn't it amazing how we think so differently about people than God does? Bring out the best robe and then put a ring on his finger. This is a signet ring. It's a mark of ownership. In this act, it's the father re- just, just reasserting the fact, you are my son. My status is yours. It's the idea in, in Esther 8.2 where the king takes off his signet ring and gives it to Mordecai. And anything that the king does, that Mordecai goes with that signet ring, it's just as if the king did it. So here's what he's saying. This is my son. As I am, so is he. In status. You listen to him. Then he says to bring out the fatted calf and kill it. This is only done for the best of celebrations. It was reserved for a celebration. And by the way, when you kill the fatted calf, you brought everyone in town to enjoy. He's throwing a huge party. It's last minute, and he's bringing everybody in. Again, taking it back to the lost sheep, to the lost coin. Celebration, come celebrate with me for what I have lost, I have found. This is what the Father is doing. And then he gives him the command to make, to eat and to be merry. Garland again says, God allows sin's punishment to work itself out in the lives of those who willfully desert him to try and get on without him. But God's grace can draw them back home and God's love welcomes even those who seem irretrievably lost but who repent. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that God's grace reaches even to you? The reason for this is more than just the son's return. It's for what the return symbolizes. The father says, For my son was dead and is now alive. Dead in sin did not begin with Paul. Dead in sin began with Jesus right here. Really, it began with uh, you must be born again with Nicodemus in John 3. And here again, you see my son was dead and now is alive. 
This father is so excited to celebrate because he was dead and is now alive, was lost and is now found. By the way, what is the greater return of these three parables? Well, there's a sheep, and then there's a coin, which people would have looked, well, that's a little more valuable than a sheep, but there's a son. And the celebration in this parable brings it to a climax. There's so much truth in this parable about salvation that I want to just highlight a few before we move on. The father giving the son a, the best robe is a picture from Zechariah chapter 3, verse 4, where God says, Take away the filthy garments from him, and to him, and, and to him he said, I have removed your iniquity from you. I will clothe you with rich robes. Well, what are we clothed with in salvation? It's the righteousness of Christ. So when God looks upon us in salvation, when we come and we fall before the Lord and we say, we have sinned and fallen short of your glory, we put our faith in Christ and his death on the cross and we don't put any merit in our work, God takes our filthy rags and clothes us with the robes of righteousness of his son. Because that's the only robe that we can use to get to access into heaven. That's, we need the righteousness of Christ. Must be covered with that. But the teaching that his son was dead and is now alive is a teaching all throughout the New Testament. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 1 and 5, He made you alive who are dead in trespasses and sins. And even when we were dead in trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Again, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, And you, being dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made, a lot, made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven you all your trespasses. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, Jesus gives the warning to the church. He says, I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Oh, what a warning. I want you to see what Jesus is getting at with this terminology. It's the miracle that is the new birth. See, the reality is you and I did not choose to be born. We didn't pick the day. And your parents didn't choose when you would be born. I mean, certainly they were involved. But the reality is they couldn't conceive you on their own because life apart from God doesn't happen. God oversees every life from its birth, from its conception, birth, and death. But here's the reality. At conception, we're not just a clump of cells, as certain would, people would have us believe. At conception, we have both body and soul. We have the material and the immaterial. We have, we have the physical and the spiritual. And as we develop and as we are born, we don't become human when we're born. We don't become human at a certain stage. We are human at conception. And the beauty is this. At the moment of conception, you have life that's spiritual. And unless you are born again, meaning you're born spiritually, and your spirit is awakened by God... You are dead in your sin. 
And that's what Jesus is getting at here. Unless you have been given the robe of Christ's righteousness, your robe is nothing but filthy rags. And Jesus is here illustrating the way God thinks about a dead man coming to life in Christ. And there's no other way to say it than this. He is thrilled. He is thrilled when someone is dead and becomes alive because it celebrates the work of God in their life. So we've seen the problems and the pardon. Now look at the pride of the older brother in verses 25 through 30. Now the older son was in the field. And he came and he drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, These many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a younger goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed a fatted calf for him. Oh, this is a smug young man. This is a young man who thinks that he is righteous, that he is better than this other son. He is not thrilled. This older brother could be considered, by the way, the good one. And in society, he'd be the, oh, you're such a good boy. He'd be the one that would say, why can't you be more like him? But his heart is rotten. Everything he does is on the outside, and it looks good, but on the inside, it's rotten. He has pride. And so he refuses to go in. His jealousy and bitterness overtakes him, and he sits outside, arms crossed, lip out, fuming. The father looks around. There's someone missing. Where is my older son? He must be here. He should be in on this celebration. So he goes and he finds him. He tracks him down and he pleads with him. Notice he pleads, not commands. Why? He wants a willing obedience, a willful heart. And the older son doesn't have it. You know who else didn't have it? The Pharisees, the scribes, and the priests. They didn't have a willful heart. Oh, they look good on the outside, but they were a mess on the inside. He accuses his father of loving the younger brother more than him in verse 30. I have yet to be, have this accusation made against me, but I know that sometimes my children think it. As I thought it of my own parents. But here, this young man can see no one but himself. He is lost, he is blinded by his own pride. And everything that he has done and everything he has earned and all that is to be given to him. And he's missing the celebration of the miracle of God in his brother's life. And here's what he's really saying. I've done everything right and you haven't even given me something as a small goat to be celebrating with my friends. But that fool of a boy, that shameful fool comes home and you kill the fatted calf for him. And here's what he's really saying to his father. Shame on you. 
Isn't it amazing how the Pharisees say this to Jesus over and over? We know better. We got this. Shame on you. Amazing how we can in our pride look at God and say, shame on you for putting me through this. How dare you let this happen? See, Leon Morris says it right. We tend to see ourselves as the prodigal son and rejoice in the welcoming love of God. He says this is good. And it's even better if we want to make the appropriate response to that love. But we might also, prof- also profitably reflect that unless we are very unusual, we can also see ourselves in the elder brother as well. So we see this pride of this younger brother. But I want you to see now the father's response and the defense that he makes that he took the proper action in verses 31 and 32. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and is, was lost and is found. Proper action was taken just as the proper action was taken by the shepherd for celebrating his lost sheep and the woman by celebrating her lost coin. How much more so should a father celebrate his son who is dead? Now, by the way, the audience would be very sympathetic to the older brother. They would say, right on, brother. Give it to him. His words would have resonated in their hearts. And now Jesus is going to turn that and with a simple ending of the story, rebuke everyone thinking that way. See, the older son has a different reward. The younger son comes back and remember there's this momentary jubilation that's going to outshine everything else. But everything I have is yours. Everything. So so this younger brother sold out early. He's got his inheritance and it's gone. What's he have left? He has me and that's it. You have everything else. And you're here grumping about a fatted calf and a goat? Oh, how pride blinds us. But he's making it clear it was right to celebrate this son because a miracle has taken place. It's amazing how we can get the wrong perspective. See, Jesus explains that God rejoices when sinners and tax collectors repent and are saved. While he loves those who need no repentance, there is an excitement that outshines this when one who is dead is made alive. This is why we rejoice and we clap and we cheer when we hear of someone being saved. See, those who think they need no repentance will be outside of the joy that takes place in a new believer's life. And I have seen that happen on more than one occasion. We'll see. That's what they do. We'll see. And yes, we will. We know that the perseverance of the saints is real. But I will tell you that there is nothing more harmful to a young believer than an old believer looking at him with doubt. And and not believing that God's work is real in his life. Be very careful that you do not rejoice with the young ones who are coming to Christ, whose God has done a work in their life. So as we close, let me make just a few points of application. First of all, living life apart from God is a shameful waste. 
And unfortunately, I think you and I are realizing that majority of our countrymen are doing just that. They're living life apart from God. See, the only life that amounts to any kind of meaning is one that is connected to God through Jesus Christ. And a lot of people right now are trying to connect to God through something else. Well, yeah, Jesus is good and we need Jesus, but we also need fill in the blank. And you can put in whatever you want there. You see, Jesus asked another question. What does it all amount to? If you gain everything you hope to achieve in this world, and in the end you lose your soul. What does it all amount to if you achieve your dreams but you die in your sin? What does it all amount to if the world's elite knows you and even owes you, and Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you? What does it all amount to? See, a life apart from God is a shameful waste indeed. I pray that you know Jesus Christ. Not just know about Him, you know Him, and He knows you. Second, we must recognize that we will not repent until we see ourselves and our sin as God sees it. And not until we see the wretch that we are in the mirror of the Word and the ruin of the sin that has caused us to be a wretch will we ever turn from the sin to the safety and health of Jesus. And so this is why I say, when I, when I talk to young men who want to go out and evangelize and they're so excited to preach the gospel, and I remind them, you have to get people lost before you can get them saved. Our sin is why Jesus came to save us. You can't skip that. If we skip it, we, we just, hey, come to Jesus. Well, cool, I'll come to Jesus. What's, what's he going to give me? What's he going to bring me? Hey, can I, can I keep my lady on the side? Can, can I keep living in my own sin? Can I, can, I, can I keep my lifestyle that I have over here? We've we got to make sure we answer those questions. Because the reality is it's either allegiance to Jesus or to the world, our flesh, and what the devil wants. It's not both and. It's either or. So we have to make sure we get people to the point where they see sin the way God sees it. Sin was so awful, he sent his son to die on a cross for it. And not just the big ones, all of it. All of it. When I was a kid, I used to tell little white lies to get people to laugh or, or to be part of a cool story. You know, Jesus had to die for those little white lies. Because that little white lie, in God's eyes, is as black as night. And so we have to see sin the way God sees it. I explained repentance in depth two weeks ago, but I want to just make the statement that while there is that initial turning from sin, turning away, and to Jesus, we are there now, after that conversion experience, we are being sanctified, which could be described as a continual turning from sin through the process of our life to Jesus in every aspect of our life. There is not a day that goes by, dear Christian, that you don't need to repent of your sin. It's not a check mark that you can then move on to the next part of your list. No, it's that continual process of repentance from sin that continues to entangle us. Third, 
Those who refuse to celebrate the salvation of a lost soul miss out on a great joy. And I will even go as far as to say those who do not celebrate the salvation of lost souls may themselves still be lost in sin because they don't get it. They just don't get it. The self-righteous man hates grace and despises God for giving it. See, the self-righteous man has spent his life earning what he thinks he should be rewarded for by God for his efforts. But the self-righteous man will learn that in the end, the best he can do is a basket full of filthy rags that God does not want. Do not think yourself better than Christ. There's a lot of people out there who think themselves better than Christ. Now, they wouldn't say that. They don't may not believe in Jesus, they may not believe in God, maybe they're atheistic, but at the heart, they think themselves better than Jesus. Even if it's the mindset, well, this world's all we got, let's live it up. They think themselves better than Jesus because they don't need him. They don't want him. Do not think yourself better than Jesus. He alone can save And by his merit alone are you saved. And those who reject him will spend eternity under the wrath of God in hell. Finally, I just want to remind you, no matter where you are in life, it's never too late to turn to God. If you have spent your life hating him and rejecting him and cursing him, and now the Holy Spirit has convicted you, do not think you are too far from the grasp of his grace. There is no soul he cannot save. The Apostle Paul was an enemy of the church, a murderer. He had the blood of the Saint Stephen on his hands, and God stooped down and saved that murderer who thought he was better than Jesus. Do not think you are beyond God's grace. I pray that you will turn to the crucified and risen Savior who has come to save souls, has come to save sinners. He's paid your debt. He's been raised victorious. question is, will you repent? Will you turn from the far country of sin and come home to the Father? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. As we, we wrestle with the truth of the good Father and understand that we've heard this parable so many times, I pray we have heard it in a fresh way. I pray for those who are struggling in the battle with repentance that you would give them some fresh energy, some hope, turning to you, seeking you as their only hope. They can't do this on their own. They need you. For those who don't think they need you, who are lost in their sin, I pray you wake them up. And for those of us who are somewhere in the struggle, wearied by the daily fight against sin, Give us strength, give us grace. Keep our eyes upon the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.